I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. David Niosi has been the president of two major organizations, the American Humanist Association and the Secular Coalition for America. He currently serves as the American Humanist Association's legal director. He's also a lawyer who has argued in front of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court about why the Pledge of Allegiance shouldn't be recited in public school classrooms. And he's the author of the fantastic book, Nonbeliever Nation. His latest book, out this month, is called Fighting Back the Right, Reclaiming America from the Attack on Reason. Uh, So, David, thank you for being with us. And, okay, I'll bite. How do we reclaim America, especially after the midterms showed uh, America's doing a pretty awful job of fighting back the right? (laughs) That's for sure, isn't it? Thanks for having me on, Hamad. I appreciate it. Sure. Well, uh, fighting back the right is uh, not an easy task, to say the least, and uh, that's kind of stating the obvious. Uh, I think it really takes a multi-pronged attack, but uh, the common denominator uh, really behind any strategy is going to be the promotion of reason. I think if anything has caused public policy to derail in this country, it's just the wingnut environment that we have. Uh, You know, uh, if you're old enough to remember politics before the rise of the religious right, you know... I I wasn't born. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm showing my age. But, uh, you know, there was certainly a lot of irrationality and a lot of appeal to emotion, but nothing like the wingnut atmosphere that we have today. Uh, The characters that are roaming the political environment today would not even make it to prime time a generation or two ago. It's really gone downhill in a very serious way. And the reason is uh, the lack of reason. Uh, There's a a politics of anti-reason, I call it, and uh, that's what we have to fight back against in a number of different ways. I mean, if we look at Reagan, who was... You know, a holiday, you know, a Hollywood movie star primarily, and then he got into politics. Do you think Reagan, if Reagan started his campaign in 2016, do you think we would see a President Reagan then? Well, that's really kind of hard to say. He'd probably have to run a little differently than he did back then. Uh, back when he first ran, uh, he had to pay some lip service to the idea of separation of church and state because that was the environment back then. But uh, things have gone in a direction now where uh, Republican candidates, at least, uh, don't even have to pretend to respect church-state separation because their party wouldn't stand for it. Uh, Even the Republican Party has lurched to the right of where it was back in 1980 when Reagan got elected. And that's really saying something, because, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly a moderate or liberal party back then. But, uh, you know, people who were mainstream Republicans back in the 1980s and and prior to that, Barry Goldwater, for example, he was kind of known as Mr. Conservative. He was the quintessential American conservative. Uh, He called the religious right uh, a bunch of wingnuts. That's really, uh, he he thought they were crazy. Uh, He actually, the, the word he used was a bunch of kooks. Uh, that's uh, which is probably own, putting it very uh, politely. Out of the words of Mr. Conservative, yeah. So uh, I think Barry Goldwater would be a man without a party today. 
So speaking of like the wing nuttery on the right, I mean, we may soon have a subcommittee on science in Congress that's chaired by someone who doesn't even accept the evidence on climate change. So how do you instill reason into not just politics, but America in general, where this is something that like is acceptable to a lot of people? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's really uh, uh, many aspects to it. If you really look at the environment of anti-reason in America, it, it's not like there's one simple cause. You know that there's there's many different angles to it. There's the American tradition of anti-intellectualism, for example. There's of course uh, the, the fundamentalist uh, re- religion. There there's that angle. There's also the consumerism that we deal with, right? And, and uh, you know. Uh, American culture is such that we're kind of conditioned not to think about politics. We're conditioned to be passive and obedient and uh, just consume, that's all, you know, sit down in front of your TV or, or the internet nowadays and just kind of don't pay attention to what's really going on. Don't participate and engage in democracy. The system doesn't want that. So there's the whole question of corporate power, because corporate power is really what's running this country. I mean, the Washington, D.C., is in theory, you know, a, a republic that reflects the will of the people, but in reality, it's a, it's a plutocracy that uh, that furthers the goal of the people who really run this country, which is the corporate and the corporate sector. So there's that element, uh, kind of injecting and promoting anti-reason as well. So all of these different elements really have to look be looked at individually and how they work together, how one feeds off the other. Uh, the religious right wouldn't be as powerful as it, as it is if the corporate right, uh, its corporate bedfellows, did not promote it because, you know, they're, they're, it's a win-win situation for those two factions. And all these different things, and this is what the fighting back the right really looks into, is how we end up with a state of affairs in America that is really uh, promoting anti-human public policy, mm-hmm. how uh, sectors like the Tea Party uh, are, you know, these large populist movements in America promoting public policy that's against the interests of average people. Uh, how does this happen? And all of these different elements play into it. And that's what I really try to take a hard look at. So when you look out at the kind of current political atmosphere and, you know, with the 2016 election starting to ramp up, do you feel do you ever feel kind of feel hopeless about it? Or do you think that there's a chance we can turn it around and make sure we're taking care of our own? Well, you know, I think you really have to make an affirmative effort to uh keep hope alive, because it is very easy to get frustrated. And quite frankly, I think that's why there's so much uh, trouble in American politics. If you look at the Tea Party, you're looking at a segment of the population that feels hopeless. They're afraid, and rightly so. Uh, They feel powerless, and rightly so. You know, a lot of the emotions that you see out of the Tea Party are not so crazy. Uh, They're they're understandable. Their reaction 
these stimuli, though, is what's irrational. Uh, the, you know, it's perfectly acceptable, and I can understand why many Americans are afraid and why they're feeling hopeless and why they're feeling frustrated. It's understandable. They should be, because that's the way they've been put into this system. They are powerless. Uh, but the problem is how they're reacting to it with this simplistic anti-government movement that is really just appealing to the lowest common denominator. I think the the frustration and hopelessness that people feel needs to be turned around and, and redirected into a more productive uh, direction. Uh, you know, progressive politics, uh, the politics of human-centered public policy that really looks at why the system has gone so awry uh, it can bring back hope. I, I think it's really... Uh, these people who are promoting anti-reason are just the people who need to give us the numbers to promote more reason-centered public policy, and it can be done. I truly believe that. So when you when you talk about reason in politics, I feel like you know what the three of us may consider reason is something very clear, but I don't. I I can't imagine that say the Tea Party think they're being unreasonable. So. Like, how does one promote reason if I don't think that word means the same thing to them as it does to us? Well, that's a very good point. And, uh, the, you know, the, this is something, as I said, it's a multi-pronged strategy. And, and I think one thing we need to do is to make people realize just how off the rails things have gone. I talked about anti-intellectualism, for example. Uh, the the book on anti-intellectualism in America was written by Richard Hofstadter back in the early 1960s, and it was it's called uh, Anti-Intellectualism in American Society. He won a Pulitzer Prize for it, and it's very instructive to look at these you know very important works that were written just a couple generations ago. Hofstadter, writing in the ni- early 1960s, looked out at the American landscape. Now, keep in mind this is during the Kennedy years where there was a feeling that, you know, uh, intelligent public policy, where, where there was a president who was surrounding himself with intellectuals and there was an appreciation of intellectualism. Hofstadter was writing about America and about how creationism was beaten back in the, during the Scopes trial a few decades earlier, and he's saying, commenting on American culture in the 1960s, saying, well, isn't it great that we've gotten past the creationism problem? (laughs) (laughs) If only. Well, you know, sure, there's still a few hillbillies up in Appalachia who believe in (laughs) creationism, but American culture as a whole has certainly gotten way past that, hasn't it? (laughs) You know, I mean, this is a man writing 50 years ago, and he won a Pulitzer for this book, so obviously a lot of people thought what he was writing is true. Uh, You know, wouldn't he be shocked to be alive today? where, you know, there's a major segment of the, of the population that just rejects, uh, you know, uh, evolution outright still 50 years later, and where politicians are running for high office with this, uh, you know, anti-intellectual uh, spin to them. And I think we really need to, uh, you know, make an appeal to the public at large uh, not so much to use the word intellectualism, because people kind of react to that. They think of, uh, you know, Ivy Leaguers and... and uh, Elitists. Kind of mm-hmm. Yes. 
but, but I think to just an appreciation of critical thinking. One way of promoting critical thinking is by promoting the emergence of the secular demographic, right? Uh, you know, we know that, but, uh, you know, we know, you know, not every atheist and humanist is perfectly rational and reasonable all the time. What? But we know generally, <laughs> gen, gen, I know, that that's blasphemy. <laughs> but, but, uh, but generally speaking, generally speaking, our community uh, has an appreciation of critical thinking and reason. And we bring something to the table when we are welcomed into public policy making. Uh, and so, the, you know, that's one prong of this multi-pronged strategy is to promote the emergence of, of the secular demographic as a way of promoting an appreciation of reason and the culture at large. One of the things that has been pretty controversial in our movement, I guess, over the past couple of years is this question of whether we should be uh, trying to become should we become accepting of Republicans? Um, should I mean, and not just one type of them, but like, you know, David Silverman of American Atheists recently went to the CPAC conference, you know, very conservative place, just trying to say, hey, we're atheists, we're here, you should like us, you know, if you're atheists, be part of us. But even just kind of reaching out to Republicans and saying, uh, you know, embrace our values, you should be one, if you're an atheist, come join us, come, come take part in what we do. And there's been a lot of backlash to any sort of cooperation, any sort of outreach to the GOP, because it seems so uh, blasphemous, in a sense, to the values so many of us hold. Is that a good strategy for us? Is it even worth it trying to say, uh, take a look at us? Or would it be blasphemy, you know, in a sense, for atheists to vote for someone who's a Republican? I think dialogue is always a good thing. It's very rare that, you, you know, you're going to come to me and say, you know, I think these parties should talk, and, and, and I would respond by saying, oh, no, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> I think dialogue is always a good thing. And, uh, you know, I take my hat off to people who can, uh, you know, swallow the jagged pill of going to a CPAC convention and, and uh, <laughs> you know, enduring that. Terrible uh, experience because it must be just, yeah, I, I don't think I could do it. But, um, you know, sure, I think dialogue is always a good thing. And, you know, the, the Republican Party, its politics have always been far off my radar map as far as where I'd want to go with public policy. But it might be nice if the party moved back in the direction of where it was, say, you know, in the 70s uh, and, and even earlier. You know, keep in mind, uh, back in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, Republicans accepted the New Deal, uh, that they really, you know, that, that they were always the pro-business, pro-corporate party, and, and, you know, they were never uh, too shy about uh, ramping up military budgets and things like that. But, uh, you know, they were still well to the left of where the Republican Party is today. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you had people like Nelson Rockefeller, uh, you know, who were pro-choice. Uh, Barry Goldwater was pro-choice. Uh, social conservatism and religious fundamentalism weren't always synonymous with the Republican Party. Uh, is it where my politics would be, even if they moved back to, to that position? No, I, I still think they were still far too pro-corporate and pro-business, anti-labor and anti-average working person. But, you know, a good dialogue might get them moving back in that direction instead of where they are today. 
which is really just out. They should be a fringe party with where they stand today. I mean, they have just... In any other uh, country, they probably would be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really gotten crazy, and and they've kind of taken the Democratic Party with them. You know, they it's not like the Democratic Party is a party of you know uh, social democracy, and they, in any other country, the Democratic Party would be where the conservative party. party. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so why uh, why aren't they reaching out to us? Is that the reason? Why don't Democrats reach out to secular Americans? Because Nobody right wants now, to be yeah, no with one us. wants to be. We're 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 so kryptonitic to any yeah. political party. That's a word now. Um, that why yeah. is that? When are they going to start listening? Which to is us? surprising because we're becoming a major demographic. I mean, we're not major, but we're going a There's large. There's a lot of us. We could deliver a lot of votes if we could ever decide to get organized. Yeah. Well. Maybe. Yeah. Hurting cats. <laughs> I I think that is uh, it's something that is going to happen. In fact, uh, you know, you do see a little bit of it geographically. You see, uh, in some parts of the country, it's uh, you know Democrats who are pretty openly not very religious. They might not identify as atheists, but they're obviously not kowtowing to religion. And I think that'll probably continue on kind of a geographical basis, depending on how liberal the district is and how. Uh, how uh, enlightens the, uh, any particular district is. You'll see more and more open secularity. I think the AHA's uh, Political Action Committee is a very big um, step in the right direction to have uh, you know politicians actually taking money from an openly secular political action committee. And of course, the Secular Coalition uh, with the lobbying it's a slow process. You know, the gay rights movement uh, was not embraced uh, publicly right away either. So uh, our movement is relatively young. Atheists have been around forever, but uh, as far as organized uh, secularism goes, uh, you know, we've only been really working uh, openly for secularism for about a decade or so. In fact, you actually said, uh, I don't know if it was in your books or elsewhere, but I think you said that the 2000 election of George W. Bush was maybe the best thing to ever happen for organized secularism uh, in America. Is that is, Do I have that right, and why is that? Yeah, well, I do refer to the Bush election as uh, certainly a turning point for a lot of people. It was for me, that's for sure. Uh, prior to Bush being elected, I was well aware of the religious right. I knew it was out there. But I wasn't too alarmed by it. I figured it was a passing phase that was going to fade away on its own, like most uh, social and political trends do. But with Bush being elected, it was a real wake-up call for many Americans, I think. It was a realization that the religious right was not just a passing fad that was going to go away, that it was here to stay, and it was a genuine threat to public policy. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, like a lot of people, uh, with Bush getting elected, I, I made a conscious decision to get involved in humanism. Uh, I connected with the AHA and uh, ran for the board in 2004, and I've just been immersed in the movement ever since. You know, I would, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about people who vote against what would objectively be called their own best interests, low-income people who vote against you know, uh, democratic policies that would probably benefit the most. 
Do you think that has to do with the chokehold the right has on religion, or do you have anything, any thoughts on that? Yeah, what's the matter with Kansas? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of theories on that, and there's probably a, a lot of different uh, legitimate explanations, a lot of legitimate factors that come into it. You know, a lot of it is just anti-intellectualism. You know, when you're not thinking critically, when you're not, uh, an informed voter and a critically thinking voter, you're more susceptible to appeals to patriotism, for example. Uh, you know, uh, somebody can just wave the flag and talk uh, tough military talk, and you assume that's who I want. You know, it strikes an emotional chord and appeals to you, so there you go. I'm voting Republican. They're the ones who are strong on national defense, you know. That's the kind of thinking that... that uh, that works when a population isn't uh, isn't hitting on all cylinders. I guess you could say you they know? do all those polls yeah. about you know which presidential candidate would you like to have a beer with, as yeah. if that's the factor we should be voting them in on. Like, yeah, I could I could talk to this guy. Not the smartest dude in the room. I want to have a beer with Obama. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And you know there is a racial element to it too. This has been well documented, but uh, you know uh, a lot of the reasons why progressive public has not gotten traction in America as as it has in most of the west most of the rest of the western world is uh, the the racial factor it's well documented that you know the rest of the developed world got universal health care shortly after world war 2 mm-hmm. if not earlier during the truman administration shortly after world war 2 uh, there was an effort to promote uh, basically Medicare for everyone, which, you know, it, it would have been a, a national system of health insurance like the rest of the world. But uh, Southern Democrats uh, killed it. They, they didn't want it because they were afraid that would mean that there would be desegregated hospitals in the South, and they wouldn't stand for that. They'd rather have no national health insurance than have desegregated hospitals back then. This is well documented. It's not like uh, I'm putting forth a controversial theory. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it just goes to show the racial factor in killing uh, progressive public policy. It also killed unions. You know, the unions never got any traction in the South, and it was because of this thing, this feeling that, well, unions would bring desegregation and whites working with blacks, and that just wasn't acceptable back in the segregated South. Let me ask you, I want to change the conversation a little bit here. Uh, You've seen a lot of ad campaigns run by atheist groups, humanist groups. You know, some of them showcase atheists in our community, like uh, Freedom From Religion Foundation's Out of the Closet campaign. Uh, some of them have criticized religion very openly. Uh, you know, American Atheists did this campaign that said, like, you know it's a myth, talking about Christmas. And some uh, embrace humanist ethics, because your organization, the American Humanist Association, put out ads saying, you know, you could be good without God. Which campaigns do you think are effective? Uh, do any of them hurt us in the long run? Well, that's a pretty broad question. I think, generally speaking, it's good to get our message out. I don't like the idea of affirmatively bashing other beliefs, Uh, and I I haven't seen many ads that really do that. Uh, There are probably some that kind of cross the line as far as my thinking goes, but uh, no, generally speaking, uh, I think the atheist ads 
too often get portrayed as controversial when they're really not. Mm -hmm. I don't think it would be right to take out a billboard to say, you know, believing in God is stupid or anything, you know, that blunt or that disrespectful uh, of people. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think a, a good edgy ad is fine, you know, something that kind of uh, challenges people and maybe makes them think a little bit and uh, is outside the box of ordinary thinking and presents atheism, pu puts atheism right in the face of people. I like that. I think that's a good idea. I mean, for but, what it's uh, worth, there are ads that just say something as simple as, like, atheists, yeah. period, and those get rejected because <laughs> that's controversial. Like, we yeah, exist. Well, you know, nope, uh, nope. I've actually worked on some cases uh, on this exact subject uh, with the AHA's legal center where we have had cases against transit authorities who won't accept atheist ads and they'll say, well, they're too controversial. And, you know, they're not ads that say anything really uh, off the wall, like religion is stupid or anything like that. They're just ads that basically say, hi, we're atheists. You know? <laughs> How <laughs> dare you? Us. You know, uh, uh, no God, no problem. You know, that, that I think is a, a nice little slogan. And, you know, these should not be considered controversial. And this is where we get into... Uh, you know, uh, legal disputes. But um, now, generally speaking, I, I think almost all atheist advertising that I've seen has been, uh, you know, a, a good idea. Uh, have there been a few that probably crossed the line as far as my taste go? Yeah, sure, there have. But I think they're the rare exception. And too often it's the other way around. They're not really controversial at all, but they're labeled controversial. Do you think we'll ever, I mean, maybe this is a melodramatic question, but do you think we'll ever live in a world that that is not controversial, that that me telling somebody I'm an atheist doesn't come with some sort of, like, like pearl clutching? Well, I don't know if it'll happen in our lifetime. I'm, certainly, it's already fine in a lot of contexts, right? I mean, right. if you're a typical young urban person uh, or a young That's suburban us. person around a reasonably educated population, people aren't going to fall off their chairs if you tell them you're an atheist. So I think for the most part, we've, we've won a lot of acceptance already, and it's only going to get better. It's, I can't imagine it going in reverse very much. But, uh, you know, certainly in a lot of the country, it's not accepted. If you really think about it, though, when you talk about atheism not being accepted, I think it's most prominent in the political realm. Right. Uh, I, I use the term that there's a sense of piety around politics in America, whereas much of the rest of the culture, whether it's arts, film, or wherever, you know, the academia, or just about anywhere else in American culture, atheism is there, it's visible, it's not in hiding, it's accepted generally, maybe not totally embraced, but it's certainly accepted as a important part of the culture. Once you enter the realm of politics, though, for some reason, everyone accepts the notion that, oh, now we're very religious. You've got to be very religious if you're in politics. You have to pay lip service to religion and the importance of it and faith this and faith that. And, and But it really is in this unique realm of politics. It's not that way in the rest of the culture. And that's one of these dilemmas that we really have to figure out why is it that way? Because if we could break down that sense of piety, I think it would truly change the culture. Because after all, politics is where public policy is shaped. Everywhere else, 
you know, arts and film and everything else might influence public policy indirectly, but politics is where the rubber meets the road. If I may ask a personal question, you used to do regular lawyer stuff. I mean, you used to do like personal injury cases, insurance law, all that. When did you decide, why did you decide to make that move into secular activism? Well, I was involved in secular activism while I was still doing that other lawyer stuff, that's for sure. Uh, When I was AHA president, I still had... Uh, my law practice and still worked my law practice here in Massachusetts. So uh, it really is not as much of a, you know, a transition from one to the other, uh, like night and day. Uh, it's been more of a slow transition where I've changed hats here and there. Now that I am AHA legal director, I'm really working full time on church state stuff with the uh, having yeah, any humanist legal center, but uh, you know, I still do have a law practice here in Massachusetts. But it, uh, you know, there's other lawyers working the tort cases, and I'm working full time on the church state stuff. Uh, what was it like? So, not too long ago, you took a case where a students were having to say the Pledge of Allegiance in the classroom. Um, I forget the details, so you'll have to correct me on this, but. Basically, they sued to remove the Pledge of Allegiance from the classroom because it was discriminatory in a way. Um, You actually spoke. You made the oral arguments in front of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. What I mean, for those of us who are not lawyers, who will never get that opportunity, and this goes beyond the, the case itself, what was it like speaking in front of such a high court? That has to be a very unique experience that not a lot of people have. Oh, yeah, it certainly was. It was my, uh, it was the only case I've ever argued before the state Supreme Court. And it was uh, very interesting. I have to say it was over in a few minutes. Uh, They give you 15 minutes uh, or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's over before you've said more than a fraction of what you'd really like to say, you know, and, and the arguments are more legal than you'd really like them to be because there's so much about the issue that's not just legal technicalities but just real you know human emotions and, and stuff like that issues that you'd want to talk yeah. about yeah so um it, it was a it was a great experience i really enjoyed it and we're continuing the argument quite frankly uh, massachusetts really did let us down it was a major disappointment, uh, the, the way we were treated. Because when you think about it, Massachusetts was the state that brought us same-sex marriage with the mm-hmm. Goodrich decision back in 2003. So we thought we were in a good jurisdiction for it. And, uh, you know, what, what we really learned is that, you know, that there's a political aspect to legal cases. You know, you can talk about the law and what it should be and, what it is and all that, but there's a lot that gets put into these cases that uh, the decisions do get influenced by the political climate. If the judiciary has the sense that your movement has not really arrived, that nobody really cares about it, that it 
doesn't have any political traction at all, then equality is defined differently for you than it would be for a movement that has arrived and that does have political capital behind it. And we really learned that, you know, by walking into the Supreme Court arguing for atheist equality, um, the reaction we got was more of a perplexed one than one that really thought about, gee, should atheists really be treated equal or not? It's like, what, gee, what is this? You know, never heard of this before. Uh, and that's the decision we got. It is very similar to the kind of decisions that the gay rights movement got early in its uh, evolution. Sure, absolutely. Well, David, um, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And your new book is called Fighting Back the Right, Reclaiming America from the Attack on Reason. We'll provide a link along with this podcast. Okay, well, thanks very much for having me on. It was a lot of fun. Thank, thank you, David. You. Take care. Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at patreon.com slash Hemant, that's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Bloomke. We hope you'll join us next time.